this is part of the sovereign artist that is more tools, more ways to make money, more even the same ways to make money, but faster, right? So you add print on demand, which didn't exist 20 years ago. Not really. Yeah. You add NFTs, you add, you add people on Patreon or other platforms selling memberships, you know, for teaching. And suddenly being an artist is not only viable, but it's potentially lucrative, right? <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Bold Brush Podcast, where we believe that fortune favors the bold brush. My name is Laura Arango Bear, and I'm your host. Recently, I sat down with our CEO, Clint Watson, to discuss the new club that he's begun called the Sovereign Artists Club. The Sovereign Artists Club is a place where artists can go and share interesting information and learn about how to better their careers using marketing tips, business tips, and general tips on where to go and what to do to make the most out of your career and actually learn how to live from it. So I sat down with Clint to talk about the new Sovereign Artist Club, and we discuss all the super interesting things that are going on on the website. So Clint, what exactly is the Sovereign Artist era? So when I started FOSO 20, about 20 years ago, I foresaw what is happening now. As a matter of fact, I was probably too optimistic about thinking that we were already in the Sovereign Artist era because the internet obviously enabled entirely new business models that didn't exist before, calling this the fourth revolution, the information revolution. So the sovereign artist era, which we've been transitioning into for the past 20 years or so, is, I believe, the culmination of information technology, the size of the network, the number of people connected. There's a number of pieces to this. First was the internet. Then was all the software platforms built on top of the internet. Then came smartphones, which connected, you know, you had maybe a hundred million computer users, and then suddenly you have 6 billion people with smartphones in their pocket. And then you have social networks, and then you have the rise of all the payment platforms. And you put all that together, and it reaches a tipping point in 2020, right? And the pandemic happens. And suddenly we no longer live in the real world and go online occasionally. We live online and go in the real world occasionally. And people lose their job and suddenly they turn to how else can I make money? And they look and they say, hey, I can promote myself on social media. I can accept payments with Stripe. I can set up a website with Faso <laughs> or, yes. or with Shopify or whatever if you're not in the art world, right? But all this exists and suddenly it's possible. And I, I don't need to ask anybody for permission. And in theory, I can reach every person on the planet and they can reach me. And so this has enabled what I'm calling the sovereign artist era. And I think it was stuck in the back of my mind. In the late 90s, I read a book called The Sovereign Individual. And in this book, they were predicting what would happen in the information age. And basically, everything, almost everything they've said would happen either has happened or is happening. And so this really only affects artists. I'm calling it the sovereign artist era because we deal with artists, but this is really happening in every industry for every person. So this is what I'm calling the sovereign artist era. As of 2020, we entered it and hopefully going forward, we can show artists how to take advantage of it. Oh yeah, definitely. And like you said, the pandemic really pushed people to figure out a new way to, to survive because with the, like you said, the technology era that we've been in, everything is so accessible now. You know, things that before weren't so accessible and so much communication that it's 
it's kind of crazy. So I wanted to ask you how, specifically for artists, how social media has created this Renaissance 2.0? Well, so to think about why I'm calling it Renaissance 2.0, my theory, my idea, or maybe it's not my idea. It's I, I've probably thought of something other people have thought of before, but every technological revolution has led to an expansion of opportunity in markets. And I'm talking specifically of art markets, but I would venture to say it's all markets. Um, so, you know, the, agri- the agrarian revolution let people sort of settle in larger groups in one place, which led to the rise of the church being sort of the hub of activity. And that did expand opportunities for artists over previous eras, right? At least now there was a buyer, even if they were the only buyer for art. <laughs> yeah. And then the, I guess the technology of the printing press happened and the enlightenment started happening and particularly starting in Florence, Italy. And suddenly there's a lot more art buyers, right? You have mm-hmm. the meditation you have, you know, not only the church, but you have patrons and you have all these opportunities. And we sort of think about that as the golden age of Renaissance art and the old master art, right? But that was enabled by this, another technological revolution. Then you have the era where the industrial revolution happens and the rise of nation states and capitalism is the primary market forces and way of organizing people, you know, for that it was kings and queens and city states. And suddenly it's these big nations with lots of power and huge marketplaces. And out of that, you get something like a gallery system, which vastly increases the opportunities for artists, right? There, in theory, there could be unlimited galleries representing unlimited artists. In practice, they're still gatekeepers, but at least there's a lot more of them, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we come to the information revolution and the technology of the internet, the network, the connectedness, things going digital first. And suddenly we don't even need the galleries anymore. You know, now everybody, like we said before, everybody can reach everybody else. And I think that combined with people being stuck at home and turning to their art, whether for income or for, for solace, right? <laughs> yeah. And then realizing, hey, I can show this and other people can see it online and purchase it. Just the explosion of art just kept making me think of the word renaissance. Like this is a renaissance. This is happening. You know, like I've, I said somewhere that, you know, there's thousands of Michelangelo's on the planet today and mm-hmm. they all can find an audience and we can all see it. It's just, it was amazing. You probably remember the videos when the pandemic first started of people in Italy with opera singers on their balcony or people playing mm-hmm. violin or the guy that played Captain Picard reciting Shakespeare or whatever it was. You saw this explosion of people trying to bring beauty into this situation and hopefully we can keep that going. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like you said, like in times that aren't so stable, you know, like with the pandemic, for example, even now with with the situation in Ukraine, a lot of people turn to art and to the arts in general to find meaning in the chaos. And that also helps this revolution move along, too. And what's really interesting is, as you did mention how the Gutenberg press, you know, affected this spread of information. And it's it's very clear now in hindsight that with every information revolution, there's a renaissance. You know, there's like a, a return to, I guess, to objective truth in a way. There is. And well, truth, truth, right. Truth is one <laughs> truth. thing. Yeah. Um, and you have you sort of have you can even see that in sort of many developments, right? Like, you know, the internet being developed allowed people to connect in a way they couldn't before, but then each platform sort of adds to that. 
know, when the internet first came out, this wasn't as possible because you didn't have social media yet. Social media unlocked being able to get in front of more people. And then the smartphone unlocked being able to get in front of billions of people. And then people like Stripe and Square and PayPal unlocked. Suddenly I can be a merchant. I don't have to go to my bank and fill out legal documents to start accepting payments online. And each one of those just expands reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and even then, like you said, like each specific platform caters to a specific audience too. So how we mentioned in our, our previous episode about the NFTs, Twitter is the NFT space, not Instagram. You know, it's it's insane. <laughs> what exactly sparked the idea for you to start the Sovereign Artist Club? I've been living the Sovereign Artist life since 2005. Even mm-hmm. though I'm not an artist, I consider myself to be through writing and through code, which is are also very artistic pursuits. And because I'm a software developer, I was able to develop basically this stack we're talking about, right, for my company and for the artists we serve. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, we've actually been in this era for 17 years. You know, it's funny. I was somewhere the other day and the guy said, are you still working remotely? And I just kind of chuckled and said, yeah. It's like, you better go back to the office. I'm like, I'm thinking, well, no, not after 17 years. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. <laughs> because he's assuming I've been working remotely for the past two years, right? Right. So for for people that could program or for people that were in the in the information space and in the technology space, we've all sort of been increasingly in this era because we were developing this stack and we could build the software and tools we needed ourselves. But over time, as they've been developed and the network has expanded. I guess 2020 was the first time I realized seeing so many artists go online for the first time and really seriously embrace it that this is really the first time the entire world can do this, Mm -hmm. right? They haven't all been doing this for the last 15 years. Not everybody's been working from wherever they want to be, you know, and living their whole life online and having money appear in their bank account from payment systems, right? Yeah. So you see a lot of, we see a lot of art, like, until I realized it, I didn't really realize it, that we'd entered a new era. You know, I kept wondering what's going to happen to art galleries. Are they going to survive? How do they fit in this new world? And it kind of suddenly dawned on me, we have the whole stack. No wonder they're going out of business, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the better ones might survive in some ways at the high end, especially, but essentially we're in a different era now, but a lot of the artists we deal with aren't acting that way. They're still asking us questions. How do I get into a gallery? How do I, how do I set up a good portfolio that I can, you know, that I can take with me? And suddenly I realized they're going about this backwards. They're still thinking like we're in the last era. Yeah. And then tacking digital on as an afterthought, Mm -hmm. but we should be flipping this. We should be, artists should be doing digital first and tacking the physical part on as an afterthought, you know, once I build a social media following and I'm selling tons of my work and selling print on demand. And, you know, now maybe I want to add a gallery or go to a physical show. Right. But it becomes the secondary thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So then we thought, well, how can we share this information? And we already had sort of come up with calling this thing, the sovereign artist. And we said, well, why don't we start a group where we can share information and artists can share information with each other. And so that was the idea. And it finally launched in the last couple of weeks. Yes. And the articles have been amazing. <laughs> if anybody's listening and is interested, it's at sovereignartistclub.com. Yes. And we will include the, the link 
in the description of the show. So people can jump okay. in there and sign up and check it out because like you were saying, you know, a lot of people still are going backwards. And even for a time I was thinking like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll talk to galleries and then I'll worry about the social media part. And I know a lot of people that way too, but at the same time now galleries don't take you seriously unless they see you have a large following, which is <laughs> <Just> kind <laughs> of, it's flipping around. <laughs> right. Is but at the same time, it's kind of like if you have a large following, do you really need the gallery? <laughs> exactly. It, it becomes almost like a moot point to even consider a gallery. But like you said, it, it becomes an option instead of the only path, which has been it has been technically the only path for a lot of people for so long. But now it's like, no, you, you have more power than you think. <laughs> right. I mean, I the way I say it is I used to go to gallery openings and now I scroll Instagram. Right. So, (laughs) but on the other hand, I do see, I mean, there is value in physical spaces and physical exhibitions. Absolutely. But I think increasingly the artist is going to be driving her fans and followers to those spaces rather than people Mm -hmm. discovering artists in those spaces and then connecting online. It's going to go sort of the. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which brings me to. I wanted to ask you personally, because I know you used to be a gallery owner and technically you're still a gallery owner, but it's, it's a little bit different. It's like online basically, but in the sense of FASO being almost like a gallery with, you know, individual artists existing within it, you know, and, and it still gets shared to collectors, you know, people's work gets shared it, to collectors through there. So it does, but we're not presenting it as a gallery per se. In other okay. words, we're not, we don't have a site where you can come to and browse all the art and um, search by, you know, most of these online marketplaces let you search by size and color and subject, right. and which I always found kind of odd because I never found yeah. art that I, I usually just like yeah. to sort of stumble upon things I like. But yeah, you know, I guess it's convenient if you're looking for a piece over your sofa that has to be some specific size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's less intuitive, though. It almost it makes art a more utilitarian thing than an actual thing to be appreciated, which so it's kind of depressing. <laughs> we probably we probably haven't nailed it yet, but we're not really a gallery, but we are mm-hmm. trying to build alternative discovery mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And that's an area I know we can do a lot better on in the future is how to build a way for people to find good art besides like I know, you know, besides this drill down by price and color and size, but it's a hard problem to solve. Discovery is a hard problem and it yeah. is for everybody in every industry. It's, it's just like all the people on subs, all the right. So basically Substack is for writers. It's kind of a platform, mm-hmm. sort of like what we do for art, right? right. Well, they, they, you go listen to them interview with their founder and same thing. He'll say, well, we wish we had more good options for discovering writers. How do we do that? Yeah. Right. Or what happens when Instagram changes the algorithm to the point it's no longer a great option? Like how do artists get discovered? That's true. That's always a, a I feel like it's like a, something that's always hanging over because they they switch the algorithm and then suddenly it's harder to get anyone engaging on your posts it's harder to get anyone on there so yeah it's almost like uh finding a needle in a stack of needles but you want a specific needle you know (laughs) and it's it's the same for it's the same from the collector side i mean Mm -hmm. it's sort of overwhelming it was almost mentally better before as an art collector because you only you only saw what you saw in a magazine or in a gallery and then you felt like you discovered something special right yeah (laughs) you still 
still can, you can still discover the needle in the haystack. And that's a, that's part of the story that a collector connects with. It's like, Hey, out of all the artists in the world, I found this person. I love them. You show, you show it to your friends. You enjoy the painting. It's like, I don't know. There's, there's something to it. Like I discovered something, right. That's a little bit of yeah. the collectors thinking in their mind, mm-hmm. but it's also a bit overwhelming when you go on Instagram. I mean, the amount of good art in the world is beautiful and inspiring, but at the same time, it's sort of, I mean, it's as a, back when I ran a gallery, I would have been, Oh my God, there's so many great artists. Cause back before the internet, it was so hard to find good artists. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure they were existed. You just didn't see them except for the ones that you came across in a show or a magazine. That's right. Yeah. And that's also uh, what I wanted to touch on. I wanted to ask you how you have felt that your mindset or your world has shifted from, you know, being a gallery owner to online everything. Probably the main thing is that I feel somewhat, I, I guess you mean in, in terms of relationship with the artist. I mean, from a very practical personal standpoint, it's kind of nice to not be beholden to a show schedule and a season and I can just go travel whenever I want. Yes. <laughs> it's true. And bring my laptop with me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I th- I don't think a lot of people realize that running a gallery is a very demanding job and it's you're sort of tied to that location. I mean, you always have to be there, you know, pretty much day in, day out, week in, week out, and hanging shows, tearing down shows, right? It was always funny when art collectors would come in and say, oh, this looks like fun. I'm going to start a gallery when I retire. I think good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. But so in relation to the artists, I don't know. I guess I feel more like the thing that always bothered me as a gallery owner was how many artists we had to turn away. Yeah. you get into this business because you want to be inspired and you want to inspire people. But if you're a gallery owner, you have to turn down nine out of 10 artists, either because their work doesn't fit with your gallery. I mean, it's really more than that. It's probably more like, you know, it's probably more like 99 out of a hundred. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to turn them down because their work doesn't fit with your gallery. Um, you don't have the space. Oftentimes they're just not good enough and not ready to accept that themselves. I mean, there's, there's a number of reasons. We had stacks of portfolios that I, I looked at every day and felt guilty that we hadn't gotten to them, you know? So it's, yeah. I mean, you're limited by the physical world, right? Like you can only yeah. hang so much art. And there's also in my, I can see now that I'm no longer in the business, there's actually some problems with the gallery business in terms mm. of for the artist and their long-term business health. Yes. For example, when a gallery sells a painting, that becomes a customer of the gallery, but mm-hmm. the artist usually has no idea who purchased the painting. Yes. <laughs> I've seen artists later in their career have a falling out with their gallery or have the gallery go out of business. And this might be people who are very famous with hundreds and hundreds of collectors and they have no asset. They have to start over. Yeah. You know, they may have a little bit of a leg up in that once they, when they go out on their own, some of these past collectors may seek them out, but, you know, and that, that always didn't seem, seem right to me. And as a matter of fact, I was always one of the partners at our gallery sort of saying, we should give them the names, you know, we, let's just trust these guys. Let's, you know, every time we sell something, let's, but you know, it doesn't happen very often. Another problem yeah. is the split, you know, the gallery usually gets 
40 or 50% of the sell. And I think in some markets, maybe even more than 50%. Well, okay, so let's say you let's say you as an artist send the gallery a painting and you frame it. Let's say the frame costs you a hundred dollars, right? Well, you're gonna you're gonna so so let's say the painting is nine hundred and let's say the painting's a hundred and the frame. I'm sorry, the painting is a thousand and the frame is a hundred. You're gonna double it because the gallery is going to take out. So now this piece sells for $2,200, right? In essence, the gallery makes the profit on your frame. <laughs> you get a, you get 11, so you get, you get $1,100 and you paid a hundred for your frame. So you netted a thousand dollars and the gallery netted $1,100 because they got the profit on your frame. That's true. Or, oh or let's say split promotion costs for a show, right? So you're having a show and you decide to split yeah. the advertising cost, right? Well, for you, the only way for you to recoup that cost is for the gallery to sell your work. But for them, if anybody mm-hmm. calls from that ad and the person decides not to buy your work, they still have a new prospect for all their other artists. Yeah. And to make it worse, you don't even get the name of the person, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, that always worried me. It's like, well, I actually keep a very specific list of all the people who have purchased from me on Instagram. Uh, and I have it all organized what piece they bought and everything. And then I always think like, if I sell with a gallery, like, how am I going to know <laughs> who it is? So I can reach out, you know? All right. So they get but, to build. Yeah. So if they split the cost of advertising with all their artists, they get to build a huge list of collectors. Yeah. So <laughs> with, <sure>. and, <laughs> artists only get the benefit if actual sales are made. You know, I guess they would argue that, well, they would split promotion with another artist and one of those people might become your collector. So, you know, and there is some. So anyway, the difference is now I feel more aligned with the artist. You know, we're trying to build, we're trying to put tools in the hands of artists that enable this, this Renaissance 2.0 idea that enable them to reach people. So Mm -hmm. we feel more aligned that when they're successful, we're successful. And in the places we do recommend art, we always, it's always sold directly through the artist. Yes. So for, for example, we recently launched Print on Demand. This is another piece of the stack that's specifically art-related, right? Mm-hmm. In a digital world, isn't, wouldn't it be great if you, if you could instantly expand how much you could sell and have unlimited inventory and not have to be responsible for fulfillment at all? <laughs> Well, that's essentially what print on demand is. All you have to do is upload your image, set your prices, and you know you still have to do the work to get people to buy it. But once they buy it, the rest of it is automated. Yeah. Uh, so, so the way we implemented our print on demand solution is different than most other places that do it. Most other places are basically a modern day version of a gallery. You go to a place, you buy a print on demand, you buy it from the marketplace. The artist gets paid. They don't. They may or may not know who purchased it. The way we implemented it is you go to the artist's website, you purchase the print on demand from the artist. And because of modern technology, the split between us and the artist happens then. So we take enough, you know, to make a little bit of profit and fulfill the order. And as a matter of fact, we also even um, include the artist on the split on the frame itself. So you not only can you make money on your art, you can make money on the frame that the user designs to fit on the art. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I actually started setting it up on my website, but I haven't photographed any of my pieces yet to set it up like properly with like an actual painting, but it's my next step. And this actually is a really good tie-in into how earlier, you know, we mentioned that Twitter is specifically like NFTs and then Instagram isn't. And 
in our previous episode, I also mentioned how, you know, making or minting multiple NFTs of the same piece is the equivalent of prints. So how, how do you see NFTs tied into this new era? So NFTs are interesting and I've had a lot of, obviously, I think everybody who at least pays attention to what's going on in the art world online has probably heard of them over the last year or so. And I, I would preface this all with, there is a lot of hype around NFTs, a ton of hype. They are the whole crypto and NFT space in some ways right now is where the internet was in like 1988, right? Wow. You know? You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting technology and you can see where some of it's going, but you can't see where it's all going. You know, we had a lot of systems in the early nineties, besides the World Wide web on the internet, like, and some people back to those, right? So you don't exactly know what's going to win 15 years down the line. And in the meantime, you have hype and you have bubbles and that happens. So I don't know if I see NFT selling for $69 million, you know, when it all shakes out in the end. But, yeah. what, but what surprised me to learn when we did the last podcast with, with Francine, and I've looked into it more since then, there's this sort of kind of quiet, they're not, there's a community, they're not quiet amongst their own community, but they're not, they're, they don't get the headlines that, that, mm-hmm. that all the big NFT sales get. And there's this community of artists that are just sort of quietly selling NFTs and making, you know, hundreds to thousands of dollars every month, which, you know, which isn't getting rich money, but it's another thing. It's another way they can make money. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Vaso. If you're listening to this, it's safe to say that you're probably an artist and you've probably struggled, like most of us have, to sell your work online using some random website building platform that isn't even made for artists. If this sounds like you, then check out Faso.com forward slash podcast. Faso is an art marketing platform specifically designed for artists to help showcase your work. And not only that, it'll also help you sell your work thanks to their really easy built-in e-commerce and marketing channels that help promote your work to over 48,000 collectors. On top of that, you'll also get access to marketing tips and help with your social media from top people in the industry. So if this sounds like a really great thing and you want to take your artwork to the next level and sell as much as you can, then go check out faso.com forward slash podcast. Goldbrush would also like to give a huge thank you and shout out to Chelsea Classical Studio for their continued support in this podcast. If you're interested in archival painting supplies handmade with a lot of patience, go check out their Instagram at CCS Fine Art Materials. And the really great thing about it is it's the first, it's really the first thing, or at least the first widely available development. We're talking about every technology expands the art market. This has done that in a big way and is doing that. Um, And what I mean by that is until NFTs, with the exception of a few centralized marketplaces, art was still sort of tied to the physical world and the physical distribution system, right? You could sell all the art you wanted online and even print on demands, you know, it can be automated. But at some point, you have to get out of box and ship it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a, there's a delay, um, you know, from both sides. There's a you know I'm excited. Like I just I just got this piece from Kai Kai Khan Lee. Oh my god, I love it. 
but then I was excited to get it, but then I had to wait for a week. Right. And that was usually longer. He was very gracious enough to ship it rapidly and it wasn't framed. So it didn't take as much to ship, but so you kind of like a little bit sort of takes the wind out of the sails slightly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The instant gratification of purchasing something. So every other industry affected by technology has had a digital first way to distribute the product, right? You have first you had MP3s and now you have streaming with music and, you know, even movies you can now stream. And I mean, sort of every other art form, I mean, even books, I read them on my Kindle, right? I don't read physical books very often anymore, but art was always sort of like, had one foot in this physical world. And, and so this is an exciting development because it's, it's digital first art. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why, unlike other parts of the art world, that the, the NFT community has embraced Twitter because Twitter is by far the fastest moving social network. And it just, and the way people can reshare, and you know, every comment becomes a new top level tweet and every, every comment and tweet can be reshared rapidly across the entire network. Like you just can't get that on Instagram. As much as I, as much as I love Instagram for art, you know, I don't think things will move as fast on that network, although they are implementing NFTs, they say right into the, but Twitter just seems to be a better fit for, for digital. So, you know, art's always moved at the, at the pace of the gallery era, but with NFTs, it can move at the pace of Twitter. You know, I can, I can see a piece and collect it in seconds <laughs> and yeah. share and share the fact, fact that I've collected it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that also creates that, you know, when you're, when you're trying to sell, you kind of want that feeling of urgency and competition amongst sellers where if someone says, Oh, I just bought this and it's amazing. Someone else is going to be like, Oh my God, what is it? It looks awesome. I want one too. You know? And it, it creates that perfect storm of buy sell since it's so fast. Right. So I'd like to expand on something about NFTs if we have time. Sure. Yeah. Because oh, I know people think, and I, I'm still not a hundred percent sure of my own thoughts on this. But when I first, um, you know, people say, "What are you buying? You're buying a JPEG, right?" I mean, you're not really <laughs> buying a JPEG. You're you're gonna have to go read my article on NFTs or listen to the last podcast if people want if they don't know what NFTs are and want to understand the technical piece of it mm-hmm. but let's just this you're you're buying a token that represents an image right but technically anybody who hasn't bought that token can download that same image right mm-hmm. so w- what are you really buying and it took me a while to wrap my head around this and when it comes to the high profile hype sales i see that why would i spend 69 million dollars if i had it yeah for the same jpeg i can download Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started really thinking about this and I think I read an article somewhere that sort of clicked the idea in my mind. And then I further worked it into an article that's on our, it's on our fineartviews.com site, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, when you buy a painting. So if, if you think about seven, when you buy something, you get rights to it, right? The say possession is nine tenths of the law, right? When you buy something and take delivery, you are in physical control of that item. So you could you could say in a way that you have physical rights to the item, 
you you get to control when you see it. You get to control who sees it. They can't see it if they don't come to your house, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if the artist wants to use it in a show, like they have to come to you and get permission. Like you have, you know, and it's like a, the same with a book, right? You have physical control of the book. Well, in the past, the physical control and the other rights were all mashed up together. So the music industry wasn't that worried about the difference between copyrights and digital rights and other rights when people bought records because, well, you know, the physical and the, the, the act of listening to the music depended upon the physical record, right? Yes. <laughs> but now it doesn't. So now, you know, if I can send you an MP3, they were very rightly concerned about people just, you know, sharing this. You don't have the copyrights to that. And then there's social rights that go along with it. And this is the point I'm getting to long-windedly. <laughs> when I buy a painting, I also get social rights. You know, we often say, we often say, and not just us, other people who work with artists say, people buy the artist and their story as much as they buy the artwork itself. And part of what we mean by that is it's not just your story. Like there's parts of the story. There's your story, of course. But if I purchase your art, I'm sort of now part of that story, yes. at, at least for that piece. So there's a story between us now. And it's a story I can tell my friends and I can say, hey, I found this guy, Kai, on Twitter and he does Star Wars stuff. And I like Star Wars stuff and check out this painting. And I emailed him and he's got other pieces like I'm telling part of this story. now, Right. Mm -hmm. When you no longer have physical art. Basically, when the art goes entirely digital, as with NFTs, you no longer have any of the physical rights, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, you don't even get any of the copyrights, but you get all the social rights, yeah. right? So I could say, hey, I bought an NFT of Grogu from, from Kai and retweet that on my timeline. And I can proudly now say I'm part of the story. I'm supporting this artist. I'm So to me, NFTs represent pure social like the pure social rights, pure brand, pure story. But I think that's something. Like a lot of people say that's nothing, but I think it is something. Mm -hmm. Imagine I go on Twitter. Okay, that's the first thing. I go on Twitter and say, hey, I bought this NFT from Kai. I'm part of story. I'm really proud to have him in my collection. And he can retweet that. And, you know, I've supported him with money and with some promotion. And he supported me by recognizing that I'm part of his story and everybody feels great about it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now imagine I go on Twitter and say, hey, man, I just went on Kai's website and downloaded this image of Grogu, and I'm not going to pay him a cent, but I got it, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's messed up. <laughs> like, you can certainly do that, and you could even do it yeah. and enjoy it privately, I guess, but you're not really part of the story, or if anything, you're sort of part of this, you sort of became a villain in the story, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like the equivalent of walking into a gallery and taking a picture of the work. You don't you didn't buy it. You just, you're, I mean, you can look at it just like anyone else, but it, it still has that barrier between artists and patron, because in my opinion, anyone who buys an NFT or purchases an artwork, isn't only a collector. They're also in a sense, a patron, especially if they're paying $69 million. I know that's the hype, but at that point that's patronage. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm sure the guy who paid $69 million is probably one of these tech multi-billionaires, right? And he's oh, yeah. probably well, what you just described that you would pay $100 for, for the right to be a part of that story is no different 
I wanted to be a part of one of the first historic cells of people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, but I, I, that's, I was trying to make a distinction between an NFT and just downloading a JPEG. There, there is a social mm-hmm. rights difference between those two actions. Whether or not it's worth it, you know, to pay the money, each person is going to have to decide. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like, I don't want to say donating money to an artist, but it kind of is. <laughs> but it kind of is and it kind of isn't, you know, that's it. That's it. Yeah. First it kind of is, but it's kind of, I don't know. It seems a little, it seems less philanthropic. Yeah, because you still have an interest in, in the artist <laughs> instead of just, oh, here, take this money and let's not meet ever again. It's It's like... You're building a relationship with them. The interesting thing I, f- I find, and I haven't, I don't know how much this actually happens. Is is there a secondary market for NFTs? Like, oh yeah, I think so. Like, well, I guess so because part of the part of the appeal that the NFT proponents would say is that, well, if I bought Kai's NFT and then later sold it, you know, to uh, someone else, that he he would actually still get some income from that. Yeah, yeah, and that's or, the great thing about NFTs. So I guess, yeah, I guess technically the second guy does become part of the story, right? Yeah, every subsequent little guy after that. And it is, you know, separate from even in reality, when when your painting sells to one person, you don't know if they sold it again. And you don't know if 40 years down the line or 50 years, someone has, you know, bought it from 10 other people who had it. And now it's on Sotheby's and it's selling for a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> that you wouldn't expect. But I will say, you know, we have, it's still early days, like I said. You yeah. know, this, this whole thing may change in ways we don't imagine. And, but, but I don't see any reason for an artist today to not take advantage of what's happening today. You know, before the World Wide Web existed and we had Gopher and all these other protocols, there was no reason not to use them just because HTTP would come along someday and make them irrelevant, right? So there's no reason not to, you know, experiment with NFTs today if it could provide you with some income. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. and especially once you sort of back out of the hyped part of it and into these people just, you know, selling NFT editions of 25 for 10 to $100 a piece, I mean, you know, people... Nobody's really getting hurt if they're paying ten dollars for an NFT. Right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. And it adds up. You know, you can sell an NFT for ten bucks, but you, if you have like multiple NFTs or minted multiple NFTs of it at that price, it right. didn't really it, cost you that much to make it in the first place, and then you get a lot back. So it's like passive income. You know, <laughs> right? Which is which is exactly what we're trying to enable with all this technology, right? It's trying to give artists, this is part of the sovereign artist that is more tools, more, more ways to make money, more, even the same ways to make money, but faster, right? So you add print on demand, which didn't exist 20 years ago. Not really. Yeah. You add NFTs, you add, you add people on Patreon or other platforms selling memberships, you know, for teaching and suddenly being an artist is not only viable, but it's potentially lucrative, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can even... really get rid of the starving artist idea that everyone thinks. <laughs> One of my crazier ideas is that technology will continue to advance until all humans are making art or making more technology. Yes. Because once you reach a certain point, technology can do the rest of it. You know, robots can robots can <laughs> run a farm and robots can drive you around or self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but unless I'm mistaken about where AI goes, only humans can really 
make art and art that moves us. Yeah. And, and only humans can invent the new technology that enables the next thing. I could be wrong about even that. Maybe, maybe technology <laughs> will eventually just do it all. Right. But, not. <laughs> but part, but part of the art is what we're talking about is the story. And it's, I, AI can make a painting and I've seen some pretty interesting ones, but you know, is it interesting to connect with an AI artist? I don't know. Probably not. At least not no. yet. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I feel like that's part of what makes art so beautiful. Every type of art is that human touch and the human expression. And, and it's what brings us all together as a people, as, as a spirit, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Now you might you might see new art forms come out of that with collaboration, you know, where human artists are collaborating with AI technology to create new and different kinds of art. You've seen that in other fields, you know, like you've seen chess competitions where chess masters go against each other, but they are allowed to use whatever chess software they want to. So like the the teams are competing, right? Both man and machine. Oh wow. <laughs> um so you I could oh, see some there's artists now who are doing that, who are using AI and directing the AI to create other types of art, but there's still a ball for that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's also still early days, you know, everything's still developing. And, and I've and heard a comparison that it's like, it's almost like building an airplane in the sky. <laughs> we don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe in a hundred years, there's going to be two AIs talking on a podcast, talking about the sovereign artificial intelligence era. <laughs> and they're, they'll, no, they're they'll be like, we're tired of humans. <laughs> and, and they'll dig this up and laugh. Remember when we allowed humans to still be alive? <laughs> For real. Oh my gosh. It's like that AI who said that they would put humans in a human zoo. <laughs> it's terrifying. Oh gosh. Maybe we're already in it and we don't know it. <laughs> gosh, that would be so spooky. It's like the matrix. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think in the end, what's what's really great about building this community online and building the sovereign artists and really trying to get, I guess what I'm trying to say, trying to get people to recognize their sovereignty as artists and to take advantage of these tools is precisely, you know, this mission to have all this useful information in one place at the at everyone's reach, or at least the people who use the internet, um, so that they can take these tools and apply them themselves. Yes. Yes. yes, that's that's the goal of the club, at least in its initial version. Well, and it was also that most of our business has been selling software, right? Faso is a software as a service platform for building an artist website and some other pieces of that. But, you know, as much as we would like it, we would like for every artist to host with us. That's just not realistic. Yeah. And we wanted a way to start sharing ideas, you know, more broadly, even if you choose not to host with us. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that we have done over the years. I mean, we do. I mean, Bold Rush is a media company. We're on the Bold Rush podcast right now. And we've run yes. newsletters, reach tens of thousands of artists for 10 years. But but this is a this is the next level that we're taking it to. Yes. I'm really happy I'm in the club. <laughs> <laughs> we are, too. Yeah. Because it's, it's very liberating. It is very liberating. And, and just as a final note, you know, that it almost feels like, you know, even 10 years ago when I was at, uh, I went to a magnet high school 
and I was studying architecture and studying art and art history and painting, I would always hear like, oh, I'm, I've always been an artist. And it's like, yeah, but you end up becoming a teacher. You don't really, <laughs> you don't really do much with it. But now I actually see the possibility of actually living from the thing that I love doing and seeing other people also thrive in it. Like there's really no competition. It's everyone has their audience. Everyone has their way of doing things. And it's, ah, uh, it's inspiring. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to say. So one note backing up, I'll just tease yeah. is we're actually working on, we're actually working on a new product right now. And I'll just say the whole NFT thing is included in that. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> and once we develop it, it should be something that enables yet another piece of the stack more broadly, because it's something that wouldn't require an upfront investment, like building a website does. But to your point about, you know, seeing this, seeing people make a living from the thing they love to do. I mean, that's just one of the, that's one of the best thing. I mean, there's a lot of bad that's come out of technology. You know, the, mm-hmm. every technology is good and bad, right? Yes. Mastering the atom gave us the bomb and nuclear power. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, Twitter gave us political fights and people getting mm-hmm. banned and access to beautiful art. But yeah, what you're is the part that, is inspiring about technology is seeing what it enables people to do that they couldn't have done before. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and instead of having to buy 20 books on business, which I have done, unfortunately, you could just go one place and it's specific for you because, you know, you buy these business books or I have, and they aren't specifically for artists. They're for people who are trying to start like a product. So being able to, you know, go to this sovereign artist club and just having these specific set of things that artists can follow is it's so much easier than reading 20 books. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, yeah. That, that that's one thing that that's one thing that the access to information has enabled, like the, like the good and bad again, it's all in some ways you have to be on guard about too much information. We live in a world where you can spend your life reading business books and never start a business. Right. So exactly. At some point you have to say enough is enough and start doing that's something to guard against in a world with abundant information. You know, online, you see so many people and we've even been talking about it on this podcast, you know, monetizing that, you know, I'm an artist. I lost my job in the pandemic. I'm going to make money from my art now, but I would just, I'm not in a position to warn people of anything, but I guess I would just caution people to, you know, you don't have to monetize everything. Everything isn't, it doesn't have to be this hustle business culture. And I think that's one of the things that has been sort of a negative of all this technology is people like people don't really have hobbies anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like my hobby was playing guitar and it still is sometimes, although I don't do it as much as I used to, but it's for pure enjoyment. And I'm sure somewhere, someone on Twitter would tell if they heard me play, would say, well, you could monetize that. You could make a video <laughs> and show people on YouTube and, get in a band or whatever. And I was like, at some point it's worthwhile to have artistic inspiring hobbies just for the sake of doing it for yourself. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. In fact, I'm actually say, enjoying life. Yeah. yeah, Cause sometimes monetizing it, which I don't like that word, but I don't have a better one is the very thing that can ruin it. <laughs> yeah. It, it kills it because you, you no longer you're putting the purpose outside of yourself. You know, you're putting that why outside of yourself instead of 
the why is because I feel like it, it becomes the why is because if I don't sell this thing, I probably won't be able to eat next week, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's the, that's the, I don't know if this gets solved in the modern era. You know, we're talking, we going back to discovery and curation. There was a, the one good thing about the gallery era and the gatekeeper was that in general, there was a hurdle that an artist had to pass to even be considered. And that's not good. I mean, I can't, it came out and I realized that sounds awful. Yeah. So it, it, it's both good and bad, right? Like that curation level now is incumbent upon each person to be honest with themselves. Cause you'll often, you know, all this, all this tool and technology and opportunity can't, there's still plenty of artists who are going to struggle to sell because you, you're going to have to be honest with yourself if people are going to want to buy that. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, when someone first picks up a guitar, they can't be expected in a week to be able to be selling MP3s. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. It is a, it's a skill set. It's a skill set that, you know, it has so much tied into it. Like, uh, style, skill. And it, again, it depends on what you even want to say with your work. So, and then to top it off, finding your niche, finding the right people to look at your work. It, it, there's so much that goes into it that isn't just like, let me just read 20 books and, and ponder about life. <laughs> you know, it's, you had to do it and put yourself out there. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, that was, I guess that was my point is that, you know, for people who don't, who, people who don't want to get into all of this, it's perfectly fine to just do some artistic or other pursuit just for the, in fact, not only is it fine, I'd say it's sad that people aren't doing that. You know, mm-hmm. people, people used to have, people used to have hobbies and now they scroll Twitter. Right. And I'm guilty, I'm guilty of doing that myself. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> oh, it's tough. Yeah. Like I, I think I haven't read a proper fiction book in a while because I've been so busy reading all these other books on, on business and on productivity and on focus. And <laughs> now I kind of want to lose myself in a book, you know? Well, I'll pat myself on the back. Maybe it's because I'm a lot older than you, but, and I've read a lot of productivity business books. And after you've read enough of them, you start realizing they all start saying the same thing. <laughs> they all and sound the same. Realize reading another book isn't really going to, isn't really going to teach me much new. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I have been reading a lot of fiction for the past couple of years. And it's kind of interesting that sometimes I do get business ideas or I, or you, you get ideas from fiction that maybe aren't even what the author was intending that book to be about. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah. There's inspiration but, everywhere, but it's worthwhile to just sit down for an hour and just get lost. In the book. Right? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Or even get lost practicing your guitar. You know, it's like you're doing it because you feel like it. There's no strings attached. There's no worry about, am I going to eat? Am I going to pay my bills? It's like, I'm just here in the present moment. So I guess that's, that's a call. That that's my, that's my public service announcement. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I think this was a very successful description of the sovereign artist era and all of the interesting tidbits that are still being added on so thank you so much clint for this chat this was now i'm inspired to go and do something for the hell of it (laughs) 
Well, then I'll consider the whole discussion a success. <laughs> yes, go, absolutely. Go <laughs> <laughs> I want to, Jesse. I have like five books over there by my bedside that I'm fighting, like, which one should I read first? But then I never have time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the show. And I guess that's kind of funny since I'm sponsoring the show. <laughs> yeah. but it was great to finally be the guest on the, on the Bold Brush podcast. And uh, Yes. And hopefully not for the last time. <laughs> no, it's not going to be the last time. I will commit to that right now. In fact, uh, we were talking earlier today. We're thinking about every other week, maybe to do a short episode. Perfect. So we will see you on here a lot more and get some of this insanely good information out there for people. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.